As the new year begins, the team here at Sina Unzina Loud have taken a look back over last year and the favourite articles that have appeared either on the Seen and Unseen Aloud podcast or on the Seen and Unseen website. Sit back and enjoy a curated stroll down memory lane and see if we've chosen your top picks. This New Year compilation has been put together by Bishop Graham Tomlin, Director of the Centre for Cultural Witness, which publishes Seen and Unseen and hosts Seen and Unseen Aloud. Graham says... C.S. Lewis was perhaps one of the most influential Christian voices of the 20th century. We forget how bold it was for an Oxford academic to write a popular book such as the Screwtape Letters. But Simon Horobin's beautifully written and fascinating article takes us back to the beginnings of a remarkable imaginative journey of retelling the Christian story in the modern world. Status Grievance and Resentment C.S. Lewis on the Surprisingly Modern Business Model of Hell by Simon Horobin November the 22nd is the 60th anniversary of the death of C.S. Lewis, an event that was overshadowed by the assassination of JFK on the same day. Although he is best known today as the author of the Narnia stories, the obituary that appeared in the Times newspaper a few days later noted that it was in fact the Screwtape Letters which sparked his success as a writer. Initially published as a series of letters in the church newspaper The Guardian, the Screwtape Letters appeared in book form in 1942. The idea came to Lewis during an uninspiring sermon at Lewis's local parish church in the Oxford suburb of Headington in July 1940. Provisionally titled as One Devil to Another, the book would form a series of letters addressed to a novice devil called Wormwood, beginning work on tempting his first patient by an older retired devil called Screwtape. In finding Screwtape's voice, Lewis was influenced by a speech given by Adolf Hitler at the Reichstag and broadcast on the BBC. What struck Lewis about the oration was how easy it was, while listening to the Fuhrer speaking, to find oneself wavering just a little. Lewis dedicated the volume to his friend and fellow Oxford academic J.R.R. Tolkien. After Lewis's death, having read an obituary in the Daily Telegraph claiming that Lewis was never fond of the book, Tolkien noted dryly, He dedicated it to me. I wondered why. Now I know. Despite Tolkien's misgivings, the public devoured the work and it quickly became a bestseller. Although, as Lewis pointed out, numbers of sales can be misleading. A probationer nurse who had read the book told Lewis that she had chosen it from a list of set texts of which she had been told to read one in order to mention it in an interview. And you chose screw tape, said Lewis with some pride. Well, of course, she replied, it was the shortest. Not all readers approved of its sentiments. A country clergyman wrote to the editor of The Guardian withdrawing his subscription on the grounds that much of the advice the letters offered seemed to him not only erroneous but positively diabolical. The confusion, no doubt, arose from the lack of any explanation surrounding their circumstances. 
In a later preface, Lewis gave more context, though refused to explain how this devilish correspondence had come into his hands. Its publication by Macmillan in 1943 brought Lewis to the attention of readers in the United States. When Time magazine featured an article with him in September 1947, it carried the title Don vs. Devil. A picture of Lewis featured on the magazine's cover with a comic image of Satan complete with horns, elongated nose and chin and clutching a pitchfork standing on his shoulder. The Screwtape Letters are the product of the war years, during which Lewis wrote many of his most popular works. It was in 1941 that he delivered the first of his broadcasts for the BBC Home Service, which launched his career as a public apologist for the Christian faith. In 1942, Lewis published Perilandra, The sequel to his first space travel novel, Out of the Silent Planet, 1938, in which his hero, Elwyn Ransom, a Cambridge philologist, another nod to Tolkien, is summoned to Venus to prevent a second fall. Although it was published in 1950, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe begins with four children being evacuated to the countryside to escape the London Blitz. In setting his stories in outer space or the fantastical world of Narnia, Lewis could be accused of writing escapist fiction that avoided the realities of a world in conflict. Lewis, however, believed that the war had not created a new crisis, but rather brought into clearer focus an ever-present struggle between good and evil. For Lewis, the war did not present a radically different situation, but rather aggravated and clarified the human condition, so that it could no longer be ignored. As he remarked in the second of his broadcast talks, Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Lewis's message to a country living in fear of occupation by German troops was that the invasion had already happened. They had been summoned not to their country's defence, but to its liberation. When the Pevensey children stumble into a snow-covered Narnia under the control of the tyrannical White Witch, They are told in hushed whispers of the rumours of Aslan's return. They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. It is a reminder that Aslan enters Narnia as a rebel, intent on overthrowing the witch and installing the rightful kings and queens on the thrones of Caer Paravel. The Screwtape letters do not ignore the war during which they were written, Wormwood's patient is killed in the London bombing. But for Screwtape, a war is of no value unless it results in winning souls for his father below. His advice to his nephew is concerned with diverting the patient from engaging with universal questions by distracting him with everyday preoccupations and sense experiences. While these might involve the immediate conflict, They could also be the excitement of a new romance, a falling out with a friend, the prospect of promotion, 
or an obsession with food. If the patient should begin to speculate about spiritual matters, Screwtape advises Wormwood to deflect him with academic theories and philosophies that could avoid confronting the question of whether the Christian faith might actually be true. The key point, writes Screwtape, is to fix the patient's attention on real life, but don't let him question what he means by real. It is ironic, Screwtape observes, that while mortals typically picture devils putting ideas into their minds, their best work is done by keeping things out. Despite numerous requests for sequels, Lewis was reluctant to twist his mind back into the diabolical attitude and revisit the spiritual cramp it produced. Numerous spin-offs have appeared to fill the void, with screw-tape emails, audio and stage performances, and even a Marvel comic book adaptation. Despite this, readers continue to turn to the original work. After all, Lewis's depiction of Hell as an unscrupulous business concern whose employees are perpetually concerned about their own status, nursing grievances and resentment, speaks to our modern age just as much as it did to Lewis's own. Edward I and the Monk from China was just a fascinating story, really well told. It opens our eyes to the fact that there were more Christians outside Europe than inside in the early Middle Ages. It turns our ideas of Christianity as a Western religion on its head. Edward I and the Monk from China by Benjamin Sharkey In the summer of 1288, outside the city of Bordeaux in Gascony, a small group of travellers approached the city walls. The inhabitants of the city gathered, curious to meet this collection of strange-looking clergymen who were clearly far from home. The strangers told them that they had come from over the eastern sea with letters and gifts from the Mongol kings and the patriarch in the east. Such strange reports from visitors emerging from the unseen world over the horizon a world known only from fantastical stories, deserved the immediate attention of the king. Edward I, the Duke of Gascony and King of England, had been resident in Bordeaux for the last two years, overseeing the affairs of his duchy. Assembling his court, he welcomed these visitors from the east. The leader of the travellers was a monk named Raban Sawa. He was an Uyghur Turk from China, and he presented to Edward letters and gifts from the Mongol ruler of Persia, the Oikhan Argun, a great-great-grandson of Genghis Khan, from the patriarch Maya Balaha, the head of the Church of the East. As a young lord, Edward had taken the Crusaders' oath to go and fight to attempt to regain Jerusalem for Latin Christendom from the rule of unbelievers. Jerusalem had fallen from crusader control in 1244 after the city had been sacked by a large force of Kipchak warriors, nomads from the Central Asian steppes, who had been displaced by the expanding Mongol Empire. Arriving in 1271, Lord Edward managed to break the siege of the port city of Acre, 
one of the last cities held by the King of Jerusalem. Over the next two years, however, his small force accomplished little, mostly skirmishing with herdsmen and burning houses and crops. His time in Acre came ignominiously to an end when he was stabbed with a poisoned dagger by one of his Muslim courtiers, leading to lengthy and painful surgery. He left the dream of reaching Jerusalem behind him. Returning from crusade, Lord Edward was greeted with the news of his father Henry III's death, heralding the start of his own reign. It wasn't until 1274 that he finally reached England for his coronation. There, in Westminster Abbey, he was invested with the splendour of Christian kingship. He swore on the gospel books to uphold and dispense justice and, having been anointed, he was dressed by the bishops in priestly robes and given a sword for the defence of the weak and constraining those who do wrong to the church. Now here in Bordeaux, these new visitors represented something quite outside his experience. Edward would have been familiar with the stories of Prester John, reports of a grand and mysterious figure, a Christian ruler somewhere in the east who was both a priest and king had begun circulating in the mid-twelfth century and was still current in European imaginations, especially as they tried to make sense of the new world that was opening up to them through contact with the Mongols. While there was not really any great Christian king in the Mongol Empire, this legend does reflect the correct sense of medieval Europeans that a whole world of Christianity was going on beyond their horizon. Many historians today believe that until perhaps as late as the 14th century, there were more Christians outside than inside Europe. Yet in our books of global church history, these believers rarely get more than a slim chapter, unrepresentative of their large share of the historical Christian demographic and experience. Throughout late antiquity and the Middle Ages, there were significant numbers of Christians across Asia and Africa in Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt, Syria, Mesopotamia and Persia, India, Central Asia and China. Christians had been present in China as early as the 6th century, with significant numbers elsewhere much earlier. Meanwhile, Egypt and many other areas of the Middle East had predominantly Christian populations until at least the 12th to 14th centuries which continued to make up significant minorities into the 20th century. In the Middle Ages, these areas were global centres of population and development. Bordeaux was one of the largest cities in Europe at the time, with a population of nearly 30,000. But cities like Alexandria, Baghdad, Merv in present-day Turkmenistan, and Samarkand in present-day Uzbekistan – were among the biggest in the world, with populations in hundreds of thousands, far larger than any in Europe. Present in the historical record of all these urban centres were Christian communities. We find them scattered across the textual record, although for many of these regions this record is far patchier than for medieval Europe. But when we dig literally, archaeologically, we consistently find the evidence of Christian communities that no text ever told us about. By far the largest group of Christians outside Europe was the Church of the East. This church, once termed inaccurately Nestorian, 
was entirely distinct from the Eastern Orthodox churches, but had rather grown out of those early churches that had been founded to the east of Judea, outside of the Roman Empire, in Persian-ruled Mesopotamia. They soon rapidly grew to include communities across Asia, from Syria to China and India and Mongolia. Syriac, a dialect of Aramaic, was the primary language of worship, prayer and literature in these communities. But the Gospels, Psalms and hymns were often translated into local vernaculars. Growing up outside the Constantinian Revolution, which had seen the ushering in of the conception of Christian kingship with the Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity, and never succeeding in converting the Persian Shah or any other significant rulers, these Eastern Christians had no experience of existing in a Christian state. Throughout the Church of the East, Christians always lived in pluralistic societies. The patriarch, the head of the church, was indeed, for most of the Middle Ages, based in Baghdad, also the seat of the Muslim caliph, from where he oversaw the affairs of more communities than the Pope in Rome. By the time that Rabban Solma made his journey to Europe, there were Christians throughout the Mongol Empire, the largest empire until then, been. These included many Mongol queens, cartoons, such as Sorkatani Beki, the mother of Kublai Khan, as well as many ordinary Mongols. Christianity had been present in Mongolia for at least a century by the rise of Genghis Khan in the early 13th century, and was very popular among many of the tribes he subordinated. Christianity, for well over the first two-thirds of its existence then, was not a majority European faith, and today it is again not majority Western. Most Christians throughout history have lived outside Europe and North America, in pluralistic societies, ruled over by and living alongside non-Christians. The Western experience is not just unrepresentative of Christianity today, but unrepresentative Christianity in the past. Christendom has been only a small part of the Christian experience. This was the experience of the monk who stood before Edward I. Rabban Sorma had grown up in Kanbalik, the city of the Khan, present-day Beijing, when still in his early twenties, out of the love of his lord, he had become a hermit, living in a cave near a mountain spring, in the manner of many Chinese Taoist, Buddhist, poet and artist ascetics. People would regularly make the day's journey from the city to come to hear him preach. He was later joined in his secluded life by another young man with a desire to lead a life for Christ, named Mark. The two had lived together for some time, when one day Mark shared with the older hermit his desire to visit Jerusalem. Together they set out on the long and perilous journey to see Jerusalem and all the sights of the life of Jesus. Like a reverse Marco Polo, they travelled west across the Mongol Empire, sometime in the early 1270s, perhaps indeed at the same time as Marco Polo, taking the opportunity for long-distance travel which the continent-spanning Mongol Empire had made possible. When the two monks eventually reached Iraq, they were told that fighting between the Mongols and the Mamluk Sultan of Egypt, who then controlled Jerusalem, 
had made travelling the final part of the journey impossible. So they settled down in Iraq until the time might come when it would be safe to make the journey. Such a time never came, but while they were in Iraq, they became involved in the life of the church, and when, in 1281, the patriarch died, it was with some surprise that Salma's young companion Mark found himself chosen by the bishops to be the new patriarch. He chose the new name Yabalaha. He was the first believer from more eastern regions of the church to be chosen as patriarch, reflecting the greater involvement such believers were able to have in the life of the whole church under the Mongols. In 1287, the Mongol Ilkhan Argun, seeking to use his European desire to regain Jerusalem to coordinate attacks against the enemy in Egypt, asked Yabalaha to provide a Christian messenger to go to Europe with gifts and letters for its Christian kings. Yabalaha recommended his mentor Solma, also providing him with his own letters of friendship for the Europeans. A year later, having visited the cardinals in Rome, who had quizzed him on his beliefs and been left perfectly satisfied that he shared the same beliefs as them, and in Paris, the King of France, who had shown him around the rapidly expanding city with its sprawling universities, Solma met the King of Inglaterra. In their audience, Edward's attention was particularly caught by the reference to the Ilkhan's letter to Jerusalem, having again taken the crusading oath only the spring before. But Solma was far more interested in using his trip to see artefacts associated with the characters from the Gospels, to hear stories of heroes of humility and of the miracles God had worked in the lives of saints, and to observe the novelty of life in a predominantly Christian society. In the evening, Sorma was invited to lead the king in worship. There in Bordeaux, near where the Garonne flows into the Atlantic, the King of England knelt as the monk who had grown up not far from the banks of the Yellow River began singing in Syriac. On the altar, Sorma broke the bread, made the sign of the cross over the chalice of wine. As he broke up the bread, he sang, in his language, Our Father in Heaven. Edward and some of his courtiers and clerics might have recognised the prayer and tried to repeat the strange words or to follow along reciting in Latin. The king and his courtiers approached and Sorma served them. The king of England and the Chinese monk together participating in the divine mystery of Christ's incarnation and sacrifice. Jeremy Begbie's piece on Johann Sebastian Bach was just brilliant. That simple insight that he changed the course of Western music by turning the Christian life into sound says so much about how Christian faith transforms everything it truly touches. Bach's Boundless Abundance, The Making of a Musical Genius by Jeremy Begbie What makes a genius different? I used to think a genius was someone who excelled at everything, with an IQ of around 150. Whatever a genius does will be brilliant. In fact, most of the people we call geniuses excel 
at just one main thing. And it's how they excel at that that makes them different. The German composer Johann Sebastian Bach is a good example. In all sorts of ways, Bach was unexceptional. He didn't lead an especially dramatic life. He was a working musician with a stint as a court musician and much longer stints as a church music director, latterly in Leipzig. In this respect, there were many like him at the time. He travelled very little. Socially, he was fairly conventional and conformist for his day, certainly not the sort to rock any political boats. He produced a huge quantity of music, certainly, but then so did many of his contemporaries. He was a Lutheran Christian, that is, he belonged to a wing of Christianity that followed the teachings of Martin Luther, the reformer who ignited the Protestant Reformation. As a Lutheran, he was devout, but not exceptionally so for this time. He knew his Bible well, but so did hundreds of others in his day. He wasn't a great writer of words. Like many musicians, he could be grumpy. He didn't suffer fools gladly and was a hard taskmaster. He hated it when people tried to get out of doing hard work. He was not particularly well known during his lifetime, certainly not an international celebrity. In short, if we had met him socially, I doubt if we would have found it a memorable experience. And yet, he changed the face of Western music, not simply classical music, but every musical style from concert to folk, jazz to bebop, early pop, Lennon and McCartney were huge fans, to hard rock. Nothing was the same after Bach. Over the last 300 years, there is hardly a single musician who has not been impacted by him in one way or another, even if they might not know it. So, in what does Bach excel? Why is he the most revered musician in history? People answer this in different ways, but for me, it comes down to something very simple. He turns the Christian life into sound to a degree no one before or after has come close to matching. This is not to say he is always preaching at you. He does proclaim certainly. But the musical sounds he generates do not generally send messages. Rather, they help you feel what it's like to live in this world and understand the world as a Christian. Take, for example, his mammoth masterpiece that tells the story of the suffering and death of Jesus, as told by Matthew in the New Testament, the St. Matthew Passion. Right from the start, you do not simply hear about or observe the drama, you're taken inside it. In the opening scene, Jesus trudges on the Via Dolorosa to his crucifixion. Strings, basses and cellos pound away on one note in a faltering, dragging rhythm. Other instruments tug away from each other in fierce dissonance. All this is in a dark minor key. We are made to feel in our bodies the slow, lumbering, doom-laden march of this man to his execution. But that is not all. On top of this, two choirs enter, singing to each other. The one asks puzzled questions. Who is this? And the other replies by unfolding the meaning of this strange procession. The condemned man is carrying the weight of the world's human guilt. Over this, a third choir enters, usually a boy choir in today's performances. 
These are the singers of the heavenly Jerusalem, far above the action, intoning an ancient hymn, Lamb of God. Fittingly, they sing in a secular rhythm, in a positive major key. Here, God is winning back, healing his broken world, our world. Bach piles all these layers on top of each other, so we hear them all at once. Something only music can pull off. It is impossible with words alone. We trudge with Jesus as he identifies with us at our worst. Yet at the same time, we are surrounded by an eternal assurance that here God is doing his climactic work. Another especially pointed example of Bach's inside view comes when Bach tackles one of the most famous scenes in Matthew's story. Peter, supposedly Jesus' most loyal follower, has just publicly denied he even knew him. And this despite pledges of unswerving loyalty. He wretches inside as his beloved leader is led away to his trial and death. A tenor soloist sings Matthew's simple sentence, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. That is about as terse as you can get. But Bach strings these words out over a tortured, tormented melody, close to the sound of a person wailing with grief. When we reach the word out, as in Peter went out, Bach has the tenor sing a top B, the highest note he sings in the entire work. A musical going out is linked to a physical and metaphorical going out. And all this happens over the most anguished, dissonant, harsh harmony. It's painful to listen to, which is, of course, the point. Again, Bach is not depicting something at a distance. He doesn't even want us to feel sorry for Peter, for this is not about someone else. It's about us. He wants us to feel something on the inside. That we have betrayed the one who, more than anyone else, has been prepared to die for us. Two glimpses of a Christian mind in action. But just as remarkable is what Bach can do without any words at all. He gave birth to hundreds of instrumental pieces, and he seems to have believed these were just as important as his vocal works. That's because he believed musical notes, melodies, chords, motifs, riffs, harmonies, carried their own power to help us sense what it feels like to live in a world brought into being by the Christian God. A lot of Bach's music for instruments comes alive when heard in this light. It is as if we are being invited to listen to a cosmos in sound. A towering example is his famous Chacon in the Pasta in D minor for solo violin. Most scholars recognise that more than any other musician before or since, Bach knows how to get the most out of the least. From utterly unpromising motifs, unremarkable clusters of notes, he can weave sounds of astonishing richness. In this piece, he weaves 15 minutes of music from a simple four-bar chord pattern, a seemingly endless series of variations of every mood and colour. The impression is of an infinity of possibilities, a boundless abundance. Even when he does eventually draw things to a close, as many scholars have noticed, 
we are left with the impression this could have gone on ad infinitum. Very much the same applies to the even longer Goldberg variations for keyboard, whose breathtaking overflow is evoked well in words from the distinguished Bach scholar John Bart. There is something utterly radical in the way that Bach's uncompromising exploration of musical possibility opens up potentials that seem to multiply as soon as the music begins. By the joining up of the links in a seemingly closed universe of musical mechanism, a sense of infinity seems unwittingly to be evoked. Bach is, in effect, giving us a musical imagination of something basic to Christian faith. That we live in a world in which the Creator God is constantly at work, drawing a potentially infinite number of options out of even the most unpromising material. Which, of course, we should take to include ourselves, ordinary, frail and stumbling human beings. Not only that, Bach invites us to hear the interweaving of radical consistency and radical openness. Listen to a minute or two of the Chacon and press pause at almost any point. It's very hard to predict what will happen next, even if you know the style well. And yet what does happen makes perfect sense. In other words, it sounds as if it's being improvised. This is why jazz musicians are so intrigued by Bach's music. There is nothing deterministic about it. We're not inside a machine or something that must unfold in the way it does. And yet it is anything but arbitrary or absurd sounding. Bach seems to have sensed what many contemporary physicists will confirm. We don't live in a fixed universe in which the future is simply the unwinding of the past. And yet the world has a regularity to it, a dependability. It makes sense. In Bach's imagination, as in the Bible itself, God is not arbitrary or fickle. God is the improviser, we might say, faithful and surprising at the same time. Finally, we mention one other striking feature of Bach's sound world that is hard to miss. The way it can encompass extreme joy and extreme pain. Bach was no stranger to grief and death. Both his parents died before he was 10 years old. He fathered 20 children, but seven of those died immediately after birth or in infancy. He was out of town when his first wife, Maria Barbara, died. He was never able to say his farewells. To hear Bach at his most dissonant, taking us to the very edge of coherence, listen to Variation 25 from the Goldberg Variations. We do not know if he was thinking of the crucifixion of Jesus here. He openly tackled this theme elsewhere in music of extraordinary sorrow. But in this piece, he plums such dark depths, it is hard to believe there is no connection at all. For Lutherans, the death of Jesus was the very centre of God's engagement with the world, the point where God identified most intensely with us in our darkest depths. And yet, even in pieces of this kind, as Bach scholars have often noted, and as we have hinted above, Bach will often overreach, spill out of the parameters he sets for himself. The ecstasy you will hear in the Et Resurrexit of the Mass in B minor is a good example. 
where the raising of the crucified Jesus from the dead is translated into music that might well be called hyper-energetic. Again, Bach doesn't allow us to observe and contemplate things from a safe distance. He's trying to catch us up into a life that, by its very nature, is uncontainable. As with so much of Bach's music, dance is the fundamental dynamic here. It is hard to keep still when surrounded by the cascading momentum. With a twinkle in his eye, he adds an orchestral postlude that, by conventions of his time, was wholly unnecessary, gratuitous, excessive. A fitting testimony to the superabundant character of what he believed happened on Easter Day. In the midst of a society surrounded by the brute physical reality of death, including the deaths of members of his own family, Bach carries us into an overspill of energy that pulls against the downward, contracting running down of the physical world, evoking a running up in his imagination, the life of the resurrection body to come. Thank you for listening to Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps there's someone you're in touch with in the new year who might enjoy it too. Maybe you could share it with them. Wherever you are and whatever 2024 looks like for you, from all at Seen and Unseen Aloud, we hope in this new year you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined. <laughs>